Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island, letting you know that this podcast may contain adult content, so listen at your own discretion. ranging from the weird and creepy to the downright terrifying. So, if you like horror, true crime, urban legends, and other dark themes, I have so much to tell you, and I just can't wait. Thanks for joining us for our third episode. We hope you're enjoying the show so far, and we'd love to hear any story or topic suggestions you may have. Find our email address in the show notes. We look forward to hearing from you. Since the first telephone call was made over 100 years ago, there have been numerous spooky stories involving phone calls, as well as several horror movies that use telephone calls as a major plot device. Today I will be sharing seven of the most bizarre, terrifying and inexplicable stories involving mysterious phone calls. Story number one, a mysterious caller predicts a presidential assassination. Presumably most people listening have some knowledge of the 1963 assassination of American President John F. Kennedy. It remains one of the most hotly debated events in American history and is a favorite topic for conspiracy theorists. This is a case you spend the rest of your life studying. There is that much information on the topic. Included in this are several deaths and unexplained disappearances that are thought to be connected with the assassination and alleged cover-up. In this first story, we look at a tiny part of the JFK story, the strange phone call that predicted his death. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was assassinated on November 22, 1963, while driving in a motorcade. He died at 12.30 p.m., Mere minutes earlier, at around 10 a.m. West Coast time, an operator in Ventura, California, received a whispered phone call telling her the president was going to die at 10.10. About 20 minutes later, she received another call from the same caller, who again said in a whisper that the president was now going to die at 10.30. The operator had no idea what to do, but she didn't have to think about it for too long because the president was shot just moments after the second phone call. The caller sounded like a middle-aged woman, and she made many other statements, such as the government is going up in flames, leading the operators to believe that she must be mentally ill or possibly a bizarre crank caller. As soon as they received news of the shooting, they reported the tip to the FBI. Despite the subsequent investigation, they were unable to pinpoint the specific origin of the phone call. Now for the conspiracy theory portion of this entry. A week after the assassination, a 22-year-old budding actress named Karen Cupsonet 
was found dead in her West Hollywood apartment. Her death was ruled a homicide after an autopsy revealed her hyoid bone was broken, implying the likely cause of death was strangulation. She had not been heard from since the evening of 28th of November when she had dinner with friends. They recalled that she had seemed out of sorts and upset and suspected she was on drugs. Her alleged murder was investigated but never solved. In 1967, a writer named Penn Jones wrote a book called Forgive My Grief, in which he connected Karen to the mysterious phone call warning of the assassination. He alleged that Karen had made the phone call, as he discovered a connection between Karen and Jack Ruby, the Lee Harvey Oswald assassin, through her father, Irving. Irv had been an associate of Jack Ruby's in Chicago. Jones postulated that Ruby knew about the assassination ahead of time and told the Cupsonets. He also said that Karen had been murdered by the Mafia because she had made the phone call. Of course, her father completely refuted this. Nonetheless, once her name was mentioned in connection with the assassination, she was inextricably tangled in the many threads of this massive conspiracy. Her father, Irv, went on to be somewhat of a celebrity. He wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times for 60 years and hosted his own talk show for around 25 years. And before all of that, he was a pro football player. He worked as a journalist up until just a few days before his death in 2003 at the age of 91. His daughter's murder was never solved. Story number two, a chilling voicemail. On 7th of September 2015, Corinne McKay received a voicemail from her husband Henry in the early hours of the morning. The voicemail was almost entirely indecipherable, sounding like moans and inhuman growling. Near the end of the voicemail, a voice can be heard to say, stop it. Henry's brother also received a message from him in which Henry was yelling and screaming incoherently. Henry's wife, Corrine, was in California at the time and her 32-year-old husband was back home in Minnesota. She was not able to reach him and eventually reported him missing. A friend said that he and Henry had gone out drinking the night he disappeared and that he had dropped Henry off at a convenience store. This story was quickly called into question. The security camera of the convenience store where he claimed he had dropped Henry off did not show his vehicle or Henry at any time during the night in question. Police checked other gas stations in the area and later revealed they had found surveillance footage at a different gas station, ultimately backing up the friend's story. They declined to elaborate on exactly what they saw on the surveillance footage but it is an interesting side note that this other gas station wasn't at all near the original one and was owned by a completely different company, so it didn't look like the original either. This could, of course, be explained away as a friend being heavily intoxicated. Despite intensive searching, Henry's body wasn't found until nearly two months later in a lake around 10 kilometres from where he was last seen. There was nothing to indicate violence, and his death was eventually ruled as a probable drowning. Despite the medical findings, the facts of his death continued to provoke speculation. 
Some think that Henry's drinking companion must be hiding something, while others wonder how he managed to get to a far-off lake when he was so drunk he couldn't speak. The easiest thing to say is that this was a tragedy caused by too much alcohol. But because of the strange details left unresolved, it will remain a mystery until further answers are found. Story number three. A football star gets lost in the woods. Cullen Finity was 30 years old when he disappeared while fishing. He was married with two small children and had been an extremely successful and beloved college football star at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. He had been the quarterback and led his team to championship victory three times. He had been known for being extremely energetic and inspiring and was always able to pump up his team even as he played through a multitude of injuries. He never let the pain get to him. During Memorial Day weekend in 2013, he had gone on a trip to a remote area of Michigan to do some fishing. He was with his in-laws who had dropped him off to float down the river in his new pontoon. A short while later, family members received puzzling calls from him saying he had happened upon two men who were now following him. He was extremely paranoid and said he was lost in the woods. After his wife and brother-in-law spoke with him briefly, he stopped answering the phone. His family and friends descended on the area to search for him, many of whom drove from surrounding states to join the search. It would end up lasting two days. At the end of the second day, his body was found by the wife of his former football coach. He was laying face down, still wearing the clothes he had been last seen in. There were no immediate signs of trauma, and strangely enough, he was found in a clearing only about a hundred yards away from a busy road. Since there was no obvious cause of death, the family would have to wait for an autopsy to get further answers. However, even the autopsy left unanswered questions when it showed that he had died of pneumonia. No one could figure out what had caused his intense paranoia that made him think he was being followed in the woods that night, or what could have led to such extreme disorientation that he didn't realise he was yards away from a road. After the autopsy, his brain was studied for signs of CTE, which is a traumatic brain damage caused by repeated hits to the head and is a prevalent condition in former football players. They found that he did show signs of CTE, but not to the level that could explain his behaviour on the night he disappeared. Toxicology also showed he had some oxycodone in his system at the time of his disappearance. Beyond those facts, everything else was speculation. No one seemed to be able to conclusively say what exactly had caused him to be so disoriented and paranoid. There are still no answers as to whether he had really been followed by two men or if he had simply been suffering from paranoid delusions. Unlike many other mysteries, there is a body and a cause of death, but what led to that death still remains a mystery, with some possible but unprovable answers. Story number four, a killer phones in for his victim. 
the disappearance of Donna Lass has long been linked with the Zodiac Killer, but even without this possible connection, her case is still just as eerie. Donna was 25 years old and living in South Lake Tahoe while working as a nurse at a nearby casino when she disappeared on September 6, 1970. She had worked that night at the Sahara Casino and her vehicle was later found parked in her apartment complex. Surprisingly, her disappearance only became known when reports surfaced that a man had called her landlord and employer saying there was a family emergency and that she needed to leave town indefinitely. Naturally, when her family learned this news and knew there was no such emergency, they panicked and began distributing missing person flyers. Allegedly, one of these flyers was later found with a cipher scrawled across it, similar to those sent to the San Francisco Chronicle by the Zodiac Killer. Once solved, the cipher read, I am stalking you, Donna Lass. Several months after she disappeared, the San Francisco Chronicle received a postcard ostensibly from the Zodiac Killer mentioning Victim 12 and Lake Tahoe, which they connected to Donna's disappearance. Supposedly, there were also directions to her grave, but her body was never found. There was a suspect, Lawrence Kane, who worked at the casino with Donna and who had been positively identified by a woman as the man who'd attempted to kidnap her. However, he has been described as having poor impulse control as a result of brain damage, so it's hard to imagine him successfully executing a kidnapping without leaving behind witnesses or evidence. It is also unlikely that he would think far enough ahead to call her landlord and her boss to ensure her disappearance was not noticed right away. The links to the Zodiac in Donna's case are relatively weak and hard to prove or disprove. There is a rumour that one of the Zodiac detectives had actually mailed the postcard himself with the cipher regarding Donna to keep the case in the news. That rumour actually makes sense, given that her disappearance is dissimilar to most, if not all, of the Zodiac's confirmed victims. Of the confirmed Zodiac attacks, only the last, the taxi driver, was a single victim. Some people think there never really was a Zodiac killer, at least not one as prolific as he's assumed to be. Whether Donna was a Zodiac victim or not, her case is still a baffling mystery, and since no clues have been found in nearly 50 years since her disappearance, it seems like this may be a case that is never solved. Story number five, a man calls his family from beyond the grave. On September 12, 2008, the family of Charles Peck age 49, learned that the train he had been travelling on from Los Angeles had been involved in a high-speed collision with another train and many of the passengers had died. The scene was devastating and hours were spent trying to extricate both the living and the dead from the wreckage. Charles's family were desperately trying to get hold of him but every time they called his phone went straight to voicemail. But inexplicably, Near the time of the wreck and for several hours following, his family received numerous phone calls from his number. When they answered, all they could hear was static. They worried that he was trapped and injured, possibly unable to speak. Hours went by 
and he had still not been found. Rescuers used the outgoing calls from his phone to try and locate him, and when they did, they identified that he had been sitting in the first car. Sadly, he had been one of the people who died on impact in the collision. Therefore, he had to have been dead for hours even while his phone continued to make outgoing calls. Perhaps this was some sort of technical malfunction, but one can't deny the strange coincidence that every single one of those 35 outgoing calls from his number were made to a close family member or to his fiancée. Investigators later revealed that a cell phone may have even been part of the reason for the crash. The young engineer driving the train had been texting just seconds before he ran the red light that led to the collision. Story number six, the disappearing fisherman. In 1990, four men went on a fishing trip off the coast of Georgia, intending to be away for several days. They were on board a boat called the Cassie Nicole, and the captain on this trip was Billy Joe Neesmith. The other three were Nathan Neesmith, Keith Wilk, and Franklin Brantley. Shortly into their trip, their boat began to take on water. They had lost power and were unable to use the pumps and so ultimately decided to abandon ship. When they pulled up the emergency raft, they saw it was not in great shape, but were able to stabilize it by connecting it to a piece of the sunken ship that had surfaced. Nathan, who had been the first one to notice they were sinking, saw the Cassie Nicole resurface a while later, stern up. He decided to make a swim for it, since it was now upside down and he could climb up on it without it sinking right away. He wanted to give the other three on the raft a better chance of floating without his extra body weight aboard. He also possibly thought he would be more easily spotted from the boat. After a few days clinging to the boat, he saw a styrofoam box and he decided to use that as a flotation device. After a few more days at sea, he was finally rescued and sadly was the only one who made it back. No trace of the other three men was ever found and they were presumed lost at sea. Several weeks after the ordeal, Nathan and Billy Joe's sister, along with the man who owned the boat, began receiving calls from someone speaking in a different language and the only thing they could understand was him saying the name of one of the missing men. Over the course of several months, these calls continued, totaling seven between the two recipients. On the very last call, the man said, I'm bringing him home, and then was never heard from again. Nathan could vaguely remember that while he was initially clinging to the stern of the boat, he had seen a large boat way off in the distance that was moving around in the water in a stop and start fashion. At the time, this led him to believe that Perhaps they were rescuing the other three men. However, 28 years later, there still has been no resolution to this creepy case. Story number seven. A woman records her own abduction. Amber Takaro was a 20-year-old Mississauga Cree First Nation woman living in Alberta, Canada. She was last seen August 18th, 2010, accepting a ride from an unknown man. 
She had been planning to hitchhike to Edmonton and had left her toddler son behind with a friend. She then disappeared without a trace and would not be found for two years. Almost two years to the day later, it was revealed that during her ill-fated hitchhiking ride, she had accepted a call from her brother, who was in jail at the time, and the line was left open. The jail automatically records phone calls, and 17 minutes of her trip were recorded. The police revealed this information and released a short portion of the recording in which you can hear Amber talking to the driver. In the snippet, she says, You better not be taking me anywhere I don't want to go. The audio was released so that the public could listen to and potentially recognise the voice of the man in the hopes that they might find an obvious suspect in her disappearance. A few days later, her body was located in a remote area by two people riding horses. Even with her body found, very little progress was made on her case. It's been nearly six years and there is still no suspect and no further progress. Her mother, Vivian, has been vocal in her outrage about how the case was initially handled and has said that local law enforcement didn't take Amber's disappearance seriously. They dismissively assumed she was probably out partying and apparently, a month after her disappearance, they removed her name from the missing persons list for an unknown reason. Vivian fought hard to get her daughter's name back on that list and for her case to be taken seriously. Sadly, it is not uncommon for disappearances and murders of First Nation women to be taken less seriously than those of white women. Since her daughter's murder, Vivian has become an advocate for these First Nation women. In fact, the local RCMP, where Amber disappeared, changed some of their policies and procedures because of how Amber's case had been treated. When serial killer Robert Picton was finally arrested in 2007, after a decade of murdering women in and around Vancouver, there was considerable anger from the public around how the RCMP had allowed unsolved murders and missing person cases to go on for so long. To remedy the situation, a unit called CARE was formed to create relationships between vulnerable individuals as well as to keep a voluntary registry. CARE collected information on volunteers as well as some DNA samples. They investigated a series of missing and murdered women cases in the Edmonton area and found that there were 49 unsolved crimes of this nature dating back to the 80s and 90s. A disproportionately large number of these were First Nation women. In other Canadian provinces, this same statistic can be found. In 2012, RCMP admitted that they believed around 1,200 First Nation and Indigenous women had gone missing or been murdered since 1980. And that number could be even greater, owing to various different factors, such as erroneously closed cases. RCMP in Edmonton did reveal they thought there could be a serial killer connecting some of these cases. And while there are two suspects already in prison over murders of a similar ilk, no further progress has been made in several years.
it appears that First Nation and Indigenous women are still going missing in this area. So it's possible there is still a serial killer out there. When you look at how incredibly disproportionate the numbers are for missing and murdered First Nation women in Edmonton, it's truly shocking. And this same trend can be seen in parts of Alberta and other provinces. In British Columbia, there is the Highway of Tears, which has been linked to an astonishing number of missing and murdered Indigenous women over several decades, cases which have never been solved. Prime Minister Trudeau promised to bring this topic into focus, but so far little has come to fruition. Hopefully a better outcome from this initiative can be reached, and there is some further evolution in how these cases are treated. Regarding Amber's disappearance, the released audio of her call can be found online, and I urge you to listen to it, especially if you live in the area. That wraps up our third episode. I thank you all for listening and for the positive feedback. We always look forward to hearing from you. All of our links are in the show notes. And so, until next time, keep that nightlight on because... You never know what's waiting for you in the dark.